You're listening to Stay Tuned with Troy and Howie. Now, from the heart of Amish country, here's Troy and Howie. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Stay Tuned with Troy and Howie. Please like us on Facebook, where you can click the anchor link to leave us a voicemail. You can follow us on Twitter at StayTunedTNH. You can even email the show at StayTunedTNH at gmail.com. You can find our merchandise at tchip.com and by searching Stay Tuned. A big thank you to Jesus Perez for helping to set that up for us. And if you need any artistic help, you can look him up on Facebook at Ace in the Hole Signs and Graphics or Dirty Baby Original. And his website is aceintheholesigns.com. We are available on all major podcast platforms, including Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. So please make sure to share, subscribe, rate, and review. We appreciate your support. Now, let's get into the show. All right, and we are back in Good Morning, Troy. And, uh, boy, I don't even know. What what episode are we at now? Is it nine? Good morning. I believe so. Okay. Yeah, I believe so. That's good that we're starting. We, we might just now. have to stop saying that because we're going to forget <laughs> here eventually. So. Exactly. So, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, um, so... We have a pretty interesting uh, guest lined up today, and uh, his name is Jose Rosado. And, uh, you know, we're going to do this in two parts. Uh, the first first half of his interview is going to be this week, and then the second half is next week. And uh, we dive into a lot of things. And I don't know if you noticed, but he did get a little choked up uh, when he started talking about um, his his uh, drug habit and such. I don't know if you noticed that or not. I did. I did. And I also noticed... Um... I mean, you won't hear it in this week's interview, but when he when we kind of wrap things up with him in the second part of the interview, um, when he was announcing about his sobriety and stuff like that, like I, I definitely heard him get choked up there as well too. So yeah, I know that was I know that was real deep uh, personal feeling, you know that and and something he should be very proud of. It by the way, you know. Oh, without so. a doubt, yeah, because he's accomplished a lot. I mean, uh, and we'll talk about that in the interview of him being a mayor and uh, and the significance of him being elected to mayor will also be brought up in the interview. And, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot for him to be proud of, like you said. And, uh, and, you know, he also served over 30 years as an educator. And like I said, we'll talk about that more when we dive into that interview. Uh, but this week we wanted to do a mystery clip that kind of, uh, celebrated not only, you know, um, Jose, but you know, folks of the uh, with the Hispanic culture and uh, or the Hispanic backgrounds, and uh, mm-hmm. so we purposely did that with this week's mystery clip. And uh, I'll tell you what, why don't we just dive right into it and uh, play the sound clip of this week's mystery clip? And uh, I'll tell you what, if you folks get it based off of this sound clip, you guys are amazing. Uh, but uh, but we'll we'll let you know the answer right after this. Before, uh, I say, I say, I would, I would like to say something for my mother and father in Spanish. Uh, el día más grande de mi vida, para los medios de bendición mía y que mi padre me tome bendición en Puerto Rico. All right, and Troy, as you heard that mystery clip, uh, there's a lot of things that are important about what was said there. Uh, not only was it the first, uh, it was actually the first, um, 
what was it? The first broadcast via satellite by that was that was uh, with Spanish words, which mm-hmm. I found quite interesting. Yeah. And uh, and uh, this this week's mystery clip is actually uh, pretty uh, near and dear to me because it is the great one, as they said, Roberto Clemente. So Roberto Clemente, who is a two-time World Series champion, lifetime batting average of three seventeen, uh, twelve Gold Gloves, four. Um, you know, four-time batting champion. If I didn't mention that already, I mean, this guy was amazing. Uh, and if you ever got to see this guy's arm, just do some YouTubing of of the arm that he had out there in right field. And uh, yeah, he was uh, National League MVP in 1966. Yeah, he was yeah. the World Series MVP in 1971. Mm-hmm. So that right there, that's kind of impressive to think that you know he was on the end of his career there. Yeah, um, and he still was, you know, at prime enough to be considered the MVP of his team. You know, at, at what, he was probably, what, 37 there, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Just think about this, too, uh, Troy. This guy, this guy was, um, kind of lost my train of thought, but, you know, he he played all those years. He had 12 gold gloves. He had all these MVPs, and, uh, and, you know, he he lived. He grew up in a time when you know, even back in the seventies and sixties, he wasn't very welcomed in other cities. You know, yeah. was, uh, and, oh, I know what I was going to say too. Uh, speaking of World Series, I don't know if you know this, but he actually was one of the only players um, to collect a hit in every single game that he played in the World Series. In both of them. In both of them, yeah. And he wow. played, and they and they went the distance, seven games in both. Get out. So the first one was against the Yankees in 1960, mm-hmm. uh, and then the second one was against the Orioles in 71. Would have that been like the Mantle area? Or the Mantle era? Oh, yeah. Like that, it was Mickey yeah, Mantle, okay. um, Yogi Berra. What did they call that? Bombers Row, or what was that? Or Murderers Row. Murderers Row. Row, yes. That's what it was, yep. Yep. So I, I'm pretty sure that was that era. I think you're right. I think you're right. And that game was... That game was played in Forbes Field in 1960. So, uh, you know, it, it, I, I love those old ball fields. I know we talked about it before. Oh, yeah. but I just loved every one was so different, and yeah. you might have had one that was only 250 down the line, <laughs> but it was you know 580 to center. Like, you know yeah, I mean? like, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and like I said, with Forbes Field, you know, you're probably it was close to 400 down the line, and then yeah. you know, close to 500 down center field, and. That's why there weren't so many home runs by like Willie Stargell and, and company, you know, back in the day. Yeah. So, but yeah, so that's our mystery clip. And, uh, yep. he, uh, he had a few firsts in his career, didn't he? He sure did. He sure did. So, and we lost him tragically on uh, New Year's Eve of what was it, 72? Yep, 1972. He died, uh, delivering some relief supplies to, um, earthquake victims in Nicaragua. Yeah, only 38 years old, mm-hmm. and um, it's crazy. You and I were speaking before we started recording, and who would have guessed his last ever game that he played is when he recorded his 3,000th hit, and that's exactly what he ended with, 3,000 something? Hits. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. And it was a double. And, you know, you're getting a little bit too deep here. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know a little bit too much. I know a little bit too much. It's funny because uh, I remember uh, my oldest son, he was uh, 
in junior high and he went to the library and he saw a Roberto Clemente book and he's like, oh, I bet dad would like to check this out. So he got the book out and he looked in the back and it had my signature that I had checked like, it out. Probably like 17 times. Yeah, probably, probably. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I've done a little research on him and uh, I, know, I, know, I know a thing or two about Roberto Clemente. Uh, in fact, I've had many encounters with his family in the past, and you know, mm-hmm. just a few years ago, I got to meet his uh, his oldest son, Jose, or, uh, Roberto Clemente Jr. Yeah, and uh, um, and I got a book from him that kind of, you know, his book was about his dad and and all the inserts that his dad accomplished. Really interesting book, especially if you're a baseball fan in general. And then in our interview uh, with Jose Rosado, yes, he also mentions about uh, Roberto Clemente in there, right? Didn't didn't um, his wife? I, Vera, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to recall about it. What was it? Uh, his wife Vera Clemente um, helped dedicate a um, a park that is, I That's believe, what it was. yeah, yes. that, that is believed. I believe it's named Roberto Clemente Park. Yep, yep. In, in the uh, Allentown area. Yep, so, that's what it was. Yep. So, so yeah, another little tie-in there too. Yeah. Just uh, but you'll hear you'll hear another tie-in too as to why, you know, uh, you know, Roberto Clemente, the first Latino player in Major League Baseball, um, yeah. and you'll find out what Jose Rosado was the first Latino to do here in Pennsylvania. Exactly. So yeah, so really interesting guy, and uh, and yeah, I definitely learned some new things about him, and uh, and we definitely shared some insight too because we both worked in the same school. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and we both encountered some interesting folks there. Uh, and like he said, a lot of the educators there were great. In fact, I'm still friends with some of them. And uh, and you know they're really good people that that did a lot of good things for the inner city school districts out there and continue to do so. By the way, and uh, but we also ran into some bad apples out there too. And we'll and you'll hear some of those discussions. In fact. He wrote his second book, kind of outlining those bad apples and and what was going on in the school district that he worked at in Allentown. Yeah, unfortunately, it's always the bad apples that stand out more than the good ones. Unfortunately, it is. Know? It is. So, but make sure you pick up his books. Uh, being what is it? Being good at being bad. Correct. And then the other one is deliberate injustice. That is correct. So you can look up his books, and I. If I'm not mistaken, I think they're on Amazon. I think you can find them there. Yep. Um, and, you know, anywhere else you probably pick up books, I'm sure you can find them there as well, too. Exactly. So. And you can go into his website, too. Jose Correct. Ro- JoseRosado.org, I believe. Correct. That was what he said. Correct. Yep. yep. So, JoseRosado.org. So, yeah, definitely look into him. And um, without further ado, I guess we can get into that. What yeah, do you, let's is there do anything it. else you want to talk about before we do that? Uh, no, let's just dive into it. We'll take a, we'll take a quick break and then we'll go right into the interview with, uh, Jose Rosado. So, uh, we'll be back right after this message. Stay tuned. And we're back. And, uh, well, you know what, Troy, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you know who our next guest is. And it's, uh, Jose Rosado and, uh, Jose Rosado, by the way, he's, uh, he was an educator in the, uh, Allentown area and uh, he was an educator for over 30 years. Uh, he's come from uh, an interesting background. He's done a lot of uh, interesting things. He, in fact, he was an, even a mayor of a town. And get uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Jose, but is it Fontaine? Fountain Hill. Oh, it is Fountain Hill. Okay, I was saying it wrong. 
But, I uh, was right, Howie. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, Jose, welcome to the show. And uh, as you can see on the screen here, uh, my counterpart uh, Troy is also here to uh, chat it up with you. Uh, hey, hey, thanks for having me, Howie, and uh, good to meet you, Troy. Good to meet you as well. I can't wait to get into this. Yes. All right. And and by the way, Jose, 2011. This is something I did not know about you, but uh, you actually became the first Latino mayor in the history of Pennsylvania. Actually, yeah, uh, I became mayor, and uh, I wasn't aware that I was the first Latino mayor in the state of Pennsylvania at the time that uh, I became the mayor. Uh, that was brought to my attention probably a few months afterwards. And uh, when it was brought to my attention, I was uh, at first, you know, very humbled and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, felt honored. But I also felt a bit troubled, you know, to think that 2011 yeah. uh, was the first time that a Latino was uh, elected as mayor in the state of Pennsylvania. I certainly would have thought that there were uh, others uh, that would have served as mayor uh, somewhere throughout the state prior to that. Yeah, that that floored me, too, when I saw that. And I'm like, you know, yeah, I, I could see where you're saying, you know, humbled at first. But then, like, I don't want to say, I guess for lack of a better word, maybe even a little disgruntled. You know, why? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, really? I mean, uh, state of Pennsylvania, uh, you know, we have uh, significant Latino populations throughout the state. Obviously, here mm -hmm. in the Lehigh Valley, uh, York, Lancaster, along the uh, 222 corridor. Uh, Philadelphia area, you know, there's uh, suburbs and, and boroughs, uh, you know, uh, close to Philadelphia. Also out west, uh, you know, Harrisburg, uh, you know, out further west Erie. So I would have thought that somewhere uh, throughout the state of Pennsylvania, somewhere in the state of Pennsylvania, that uh, we would have had at least one or two others uh, prior to me mm -hmm. uh, being elected in 2011. So again, uh, when that was brought to my attention, uh, at first, you know, I was a bit, uh, you know, humbled and, and honored, I guess, to hear that. But also, you know, the more I thought about it, uh, I think I, I started to become troubled by the fact that, you know, it's taken this long. And even now, here we are in 2020, I think there was one other person that was elected a few years after me, mm -hmm. uh, somewhere in the Reading-Lancaster area. I believe it was a, a borough oh. uh, somewhere uh, down in that area. And now, just last year, uh, the city of Reading uh, elected Eddie Moran as uh, the mayor in the city of Reading. So, okay. uh, you know, I guess now we were, we're up to three. <laughs> you, you got the ball rolling, right? Yep. You got the ball rolling. Yeah. Wow. So, do you, do you, yeah, go ahead, Do you Troy. think that was because of lack of interest? Or do you just think that, I mean, to put it bluntly, do you think there's still, obviously there's racism in the country, I'm not saying that, but do you think that it had to do because of race that they weren't getting elected or do you think it was because of lack of interest uh i think that uh, there, there are several factors and again depending on you know uh, where someone would elect or, or, or choose to run sure uh, i think that you know race certainly plays a factor into it prior to running for mayor i had run for city council uh when i lived in bethlehem uh back in 1993 and i ran a very very good race and, uh, you know, uh, we were, uh, you know, very active. Uh, and back then, you know, the media covered uh, elections uh, uh, very closely. Uh, I had several press conferences. Uh, I did very well in the debates. I worked as a guidance counselor at Liberty High School at the time. So I was well known. And mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, I lost in a primary by a few hundred votes. Wow. Uh, now, running against, uh, I think there were four seats open. 
there were three uh, incumbents and then there was one open seat. And I think there were uh, myself and two others that were running in addition to the incumbents. And I came in fifth uh, in mm. a race for four seats. But I think uh, my, my campaign manager for that particular race, Peggy Worley, a white middle class uh, lady, uh, very progressive, living on the west end of Bethlehem. And uh, we worked our butts off. I mean, no one mm-hmm. outworked us, you know, knocking on doors, press conferences, the whole thing. And uh, by the time uh, election uh, day rolled around, uh, people were saying, hey, look at, you know, uh, I, you know, we're thinking that Jose is, is going to, uh, you know, uh, get through the primary. And uh, we had a significant Latino population in the, in the city of Bethlehem at that time, even though it was, you know, 27 years ago. Mm-hmm. And the Latino community turned out to vote. And uh, unfortunately, I came up a little bit short. But mm. if you look at the election results in that particular election, uh, you know, those uh, those precincts that uh, were were heavily populated by, by Latinos, I won all of those precincts. South Bethlehem, where I lived at the time, I won all of those precincts. Wow. I mean, and I won significantly. But then outside of, of uh, you know, that area, outside of that base, uh, I just, uh, you know, wasn't able to get enough support. And, uh, you know, I, I came up a bit short. And uh, I know that my, my campaign manager and others uh, were attributing that to race. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I really never wanted to, to go there, never really played that card. But, uh, you know, I, I was disappointed. And, and when the media itself reported, you know, uh, Jose Rosado, you know, comes up short and uh, was, um, what, how, do they, how do they report this? It was upset. They, they, they called it an upset, my, my, my uh, not winning uh, that uh, was classified as an upset. Uh, <laughs> but uh, they did, uh, you know, question whether or not, uh, you know, race may have been a factor. But again, uh, I, I really didn't want to go there. I do know that uh, when I first announced that I was running for city council in the city of Bethlehem, Back then, before my beard became gray, <laughs> uh, I had a you know uh, a goatee, so you know a dark black goatee, and uh, I know this is basically going out on audio, but I'm a rather you know dark complex uh, complexion uh, Latino, you know I've got some color to me, and then uh, with a goatee, and uh, so people were advising me that maybe you know I should shave, okay, and instead of going by Jose Rosado, my given name Jose Rosado. <laughs> People were suggesting that maybe I go by Joe Rosado. <laughs> I was really offended by that. I you mean, think? I, no. My mama named me Jose, and that's who I am, and I'm going to run as Jose Rosado. And, uh, you know, my wife likes my goatee, so I'm not shaving. <laughs> so if people got an issue with, you know, my appearance and my name, then uh, if that's the reason that uh, they would choose not to support me, then I'm okay with that. And... Uh, after the election, you know, some people did say that, you know, that was a factor. And I kind of knew that because, uh, you know, uh, during that campaign, I knocked on a lot of doors. Yeah. Mm. And uh, there were several doors, more than several doors, that I knocked on where uh, when, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the homeowner or the resident opened the door and saw this rather, you know, dark-skinned Latino with a goatee. Uh, you know, even though I was wearing a suit and tie, uh, you know, they were <laughs> taken a little bit aback by that. So, uh, you know, was race a factor? Uh, I would think that, you know, uh, back then, yes, it probably was a, mm-hmm. was a slight factor. But uh, I wasn't uh, really, uh, you know, going to be, uh, you know, discouraged by that. Um, I then ran again another campaign in uh, 2006. I ran for state representative. 
And, uh, you know, same type of experience. Uh, you know, uh, there were uh, four individuals that were running for an open seat. So it was me against three white guys. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the same thing, you know, uh, and, and when you're talking about state representative, a state house seat, you're talking about a larger geographic area. So mm-hmm. it goes outside of Bethlehem. And, uh, you know, it, it goes more up into the, the rural area, mm-hmm. uh, rural sections of the district up in, uh, you know, Copley, Catasauqua and Whitehall. OK, so the election results for that primary were basically the same. I did very, very well. I mean, I want every precinct uh, in the lower in the southern part of, uh, of the legislative district. I want every precinct and people knew me uh, uh, much better in 2006 because of the work that I had done in, in uh, the Bethlehem area school district and throughout the community. So I was well known. Sure. So I, uh, the West end of Bethlehem, which is white middle class progressive. I won every precinct in West Bethlehem, even though I was running against three white men. Uh, but I think people, you know, knew me. Uh, so I had name recognition. People respected me, uh, knew, knew what I stood for. So I did very well there. And again, you know, I was very active throughout the campaign with press conferences, uh, knocked on um, probably thousands of doors. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I expected to do well. And again, uh, you know, the election results, uh, you know, uh, showed, uh, you know, uh, the, the split again, I guess, um, because most of the districts or all of the districts in the southern part of uh, the legislative district, I won. Uh, but then once we got up into the northern part of the district, Copley, Catasauqua, Whitehall, actually in Copley, I think I got, I don't know if I got double digit votes. I mean, it, it was bad. It was bad. <laughs> it, you know, no. You know, people weren't, they, they weren't here in Hosero South. Yeah. Now, was it so, possible you know, for you to run by Joe in the north and Jose in the south? <laughs> I, I just would not do that. Uh, and, uh, you know, my last name, obviously. And, uh, and all they need to do is just, you know, see a picture of me and say, what? Really? No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, I mean, but uh, that, that's just what that was. Uh, and uh, in that particular race, I came second out of four, and I lost by 250 votes. And again, you know, when you hmm. talk about legislative districts and the gerrymandering, uh, you know, uh, the, the southern part of this district and the northern part of this district are, are two complete different worlds. Right. South Bethlehem and Copley are just two totally different worlds. So when it gets into politics and you talk about, uh, you know, the geographic area that, that you're running for, whether it's a borough, whether it's a city, or whether it's a, a state house seat, again, uh, you know, uh, once you get into larger geographic areas and uh, uh, the, uh, the population is, uh, you know, more diverse, uh, I, I think, uh, or in, in this case, you know, uh, less, uh, you know, Latino, uh, you know, it makes it a little bit difficult. But the interesting thing about that is that uh, when I, I ran for mayor here in Fountain Hill, I was encouraged to run. I mean, uh, and the reason I was encouraged to run was we had a, a very dysfunctional police department. It was mm. an absolute mess. And uh, the borough form of government, uh, the mayor serves on a part time basis. So it's not a full time job, even mm. though when I got elected and I, I, I took over, I was working 30, 35 hours a week. Yeah. We just had a, our hands here. But because of the specific needs, uh, you know, to uh, really uh, oversee uh, the police department and, and uh, 
just uh, address many of the concerns that we had in the police department. There were people that knew me, knew my background, uh, my undergraduate degrees in criminal justice administration. So I was approached and encouraged to seek that position, mm -hmm. and uh, I did. And uh, obviously, uh, living in this borough at that time, I, I think I was in the borough probably about 15 years before then, and uh, you know, working in the school district that, that serves this community, the people knew me. So although the borough of Fountain Hill at the time that I won my first election was 72% white, uh, I won uh, in a contested primary, no less. Uh, wow. You know, I, a contested primary and a contested general election. And I nice. won by a large margin. And then I was reelected again. So, I mean, that just goes to show that uh, if, if the community that you're looking to serve and represent, they know you. Yep. Uh, they know who you are. They trust and respect, you know, who you are and what you do. Uh, they'll support you. So, you know, uh, again, you know, despite, uh, you know, uh, you know, my, my appearance or whatever, you know, Jose Rosado, you know, <laughs> was elected as the mayor here in Fountain Hill and uh, was elected by a majority, uh, you know, white community. Right. So I, I felt really good about that uh, because of the fact that, uh, you know, I ran to, to serve uh, the entire borough and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, not just the Latino community, African-American community or, you know, any specific community. My, my, my uh, you know, concern was to address the needs uh, of the borough and mm -hmm. uh, you know, I put myself in that position. I was fortunate enough to to be elected uh, uh, and then reelected. Uh, and actually, uh, I, after serving my second term, I chose not to run again uh, because uh, at that point, uh, you know, many of the things, actually, all of the concerns that we had with our police department, uh, we had addressed and uh, were able to resolve. And uh, I think there's a saying that says, "Hey, get out while the going's good." Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, and you know what? And and do you have an interest in uh, staying in politics in any form or fashion? Is that something you're thinking about again, or? Well, that state house seat uh, is is something that I still have an interest in. Okay. Uh, and, uh, I mean, I, I've uh, I've uh, you know pursued uh, an interest in that particular seat a few times, uh, and I, I think I'm going to wait to see what happens now after the 2020 census count. And redistricting, sure. And looking to see, you know, what uh, what the district looks like again with gerrymandering. Uh, you know, if you guys have ever looked at state house seats and yes. uh, you look at the boundaries, uh, they look like ink blots, right? like Rorschach. <laughs> it's like, are you kidding me? Uh, and and uh, uh, it, it's troubling. It's just very very troubling. Right. When you look at the Lehigh Valley and you look at the Latino population in the Lehigh Valley. Allentown, Bethlehem, Easton, all of the neighboring boroughs and towns, uh, you know, Bethlehem Township, Fountain Hill, Salisbury, we have a significant Latino population. And uh, there's no reason why we cannot elect a state representative from the Lehigh Valley. Mm -hmm. Problem is that within the Lehigh Valley, I'm not sure what the number is, but we have about four, five, or maybe even six different state house seats. So they take, you know, this this area of the Lehigh Valley and they just divvy it up. So the Latino community, you know, you know, gets divided. Your, your vote gets diluted. I think South mm -hmm. Bethlehem is is has one representative. And then the northern section of Bethlehem, the northeast section of Bethlehem, where you have another high concentration 
of Latinos. They're represented by a different state representative. Allentown has, I think, two or three different state reps that that divvy up that population. So it's difficult to, to uh, you know, elect a representative, right. you know, because the fact that, you know, uh, you, you have the gerrymandering and uh, the, uh, the population, uh, the community just gets divided. So uh, it's difficult, but uh, I think that now with uh, the census count 2020 and redistricting, uh, those uh, concerns have to be addressed, mm-hmm. and we have to look at uh, uh, you know maintaining districts, uh, you know where where uh, you know the, the 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 people that live within those communities are represented by uh, you know a single state rep and, sure. and not divided uh, to the to the point where they are right now. Yeah. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, it definitely would. And uh, I mean, you think about this, Jose, think about where you've started and what you have become. I mean, do you do you take pride in, in that? And we'll definitely talk about, you know, your upbringing and what you grew up in and such. But I mean, you didn't grow up in the in the best of environments and uh, and you didn't treat yourself too well either at a younger age. <laughs> so like where you are now, I mean, you know, me sitting on the outside looking in, I mean, you've accomplished a lot, a lot that you should be proud of. But then again, you know, you look at what happened in your past. It's like, wow, how are you even alive to even talk to us right now? Yeah. Well, you know, and, and depending on, on, you know, where, where my mind might be on any given day, you know, I think to myself, I'm, I'm very, very fortunate to, to be where I am. I've overcome so much in, in my life, and uh, I should be thankful. And I am very thankful for, for where I am and, and the things that I've accomplished mm-hmm. and the things that I continue to do. But then I also think about some of the barriers uh, that uh, I've had to overcome and some of the barriers that still exist. Right. And, uh, and some of the injustices that I've had to, to endure and, and I sometimes think to myself, if not for that, where could I possibly be? Mm-hmm. So, again, you know, huh. am I comfortable? Am I happy with where I am? Yes. You know, uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, I, I'm very pleased with where I am today. I, I understand that I'm very fortunate to be where I am today. But, again, uh, there, there are moments or there are times when I think to myself, if not for that barrier, if not for this injustice, if not for that, uh, you know, I, I you know, could have, uh, you know, uh, been in, in, in another position or, you know, may have had another opportunity, uh, you know, to uh, represent, uh, you know, uh, my community and, and uh, you know, represent others and create opportunities for others uh, even more so than uh, I have. Interesting. Well, why, don't, Go ahead. why don't we dig into that a little bit? Why don't we dig into uh, what the upbringing was, where you grew up, what you were going through, and, uh, and some of the you know, obstacles you ran into in your life when you were a young, young man. Okay. Well, I grew up in public housing. Um, I remember, you know, as a small child, probably was about five years old. And, uh, you know, we were fortunate enough to get out of, uh, I think it was like a two bedroom apartment that we lived. It was over a shoe store in South hmm. Bethlehem. Hmm. And, uh, you know, we were fortunate enough to uh, move into public housing. Uh, in the late 60s, 68, I think it was. And, uh, you know, when we first moved into public housing back then, uh, things were pretty good. I mean, the neighborhood was was pretty safe. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, it's a it's a lower income community It was a lower income community housing projects. But as a young child, uh, 
there were always kids to play with. Uh, so it was fun. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, as far as our, our income, we were poor. Uh, we lived on welfare and food stamps. And, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 uh, the units that we lived in were just, you know, old rundown barracks for the most part, cinder block homes, barracks. Mm-hmm. And they were units, rows of five units. Uh, so, you know, we had the rats and the roaches and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the heat would go bad, plumbing issues. I mean, we dealt with all of that. But, you know, as a very young kid, uh, I mean, I was just, uh, you know, happy to be able to, you know, run around and, and have some fun with my friends. Right. Uh, but I think uh, as I got a bit older, I think, you know, by the time I was eight, nine years old and, and, and you know, to, to lose your innocence, you know, to start to lose that innocence at, at the age of eight or nine, yeah. uh, I, I that was very troubling, you know, to, to realize that, uh, you know, life isn't as pleasant as it was when you were five, six, seven years old. You know, <laughs> you start dealing with a lot of unpleasant issues, uh, you know, uh, and, and uh, I dealt with a lot of that at a very early age. Uh, sure. my, my uncle was uh, tragically killed in a car accident in 1972. Uh, I guess, uh, you know, at, at that early age, uh, at the age of eight, uh, you know, when my uncle was tragically killed in that car accident, uh, you know, by, by that time, I had already, you know, started to uh, experience uh, some hardships and, uh, you know, some unpleasant situations uh, in my life. Yeah. You know, talking about uh, the dysfunction in my household, uh, you know, living with an alcoholic father and, uh, you know, dealing with a lot of uh, the domestic violence, uh, the verbal, the physical, psychological abuse. So, uh, you know... I was at a point in my life, even though I was so young, where, you know, uh, I wasn't very happy. And, uh, you know, when my uncle died in that car accident, uh, my cousin started to uh, use drugs just to, uh, mm. I guess, uh, self-medicate or or just uh, numb himself from a lot of the things that he was feeling. And I remember, you know, going to his house uh, one day a few days after, a few weeks after the accident, and I walked uh, upstairs uh, to his bedroom and uh, when I walked in, he was there with a couple of his friends, and no one was talking. They were just sitting on the bed, and I saw that they were passing around, you know, this yeah. uh, this object, which at first I thought was a cigarette. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I just quietly sat on the corner of the bed and, you know, just uh, wanting to be there with my cousin. And uh, within a few minutes, uh, that uh, object uh, happened to be passed over to me, and it was a joint. Uh, it was a, a marijuana joint. And uh, I was eight years old, and uh, I started to get high. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, I, I guess, uh, yeah, I guess that uh, I just learned at an early age that, you know, drugs could mask your pain. And uh, so that's, you know, that's where it started for me, you know. And uh, by the time uh, I was in middle school, you know, I was getting high on a regular basis, you know, not only myself, but, but my friends, uh, you know, we were getting high on a regular basis. And, and prior to that, like I said, when I was younger, you know, 69, 70, 71, you know, and I'm, you know, whatever it is, you know, six, seven years old, just turning eight years old, you know, growing up in the projects back then, uh, you know, uh, you always had your winos and, and, and uh, sure. you know, guys, winos. Mm-hmm. They're at the end of the block and, and, and they're drinking their wine and you got your hippies that are smoking their <laughs> marijuana. So we saw a lot of this, 
And like I said, uh, you know, after that tragic accident with my, with my uncle, I started to to use marijuana at that early age, and also started to drink. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, and, and a lot of my friends, you know, were dealing with similar types of situations. Uh, you know, domestic violence, uh, dysfunctional families. You know, uh, and starting to realize that life isn't fair, and that life isn't you know. Uh, as fun as we thought. So we went from, uh, you know, being these little kids that enjoyed, you know, getting together at the playground and, and, and playing, you know, kick the can and, and tag and, you know, all of the hide and seek. You know, we went from being little kids that enjoyed all of those games, running down to the pool and jumping in the pool, sneaking into the pool, mm-hmm. you know, playing right. uh, baseball up uh, up at the park. And, and I know how you're, you're a big Roberto Clemente fan, but we had a park up. Uh, Actually, that in 1972, uh, Vera Clemente visited uh, South Terrace, the housing projects that I grew up in, yeah. and uh, cut the rib for the Roberto Clemente Community Park, uh, the Bethlehem Housing Authority. Wow. Uh, built a, a park up in uh, up in uh, the projects and uh, named it after Roberto Clemente. So that's that was a awesome. source of pride for us. We would, we would be up there, you know, wanting to play baseball. And, and do those things, you know, at an early age. And even early on when I was eight, nine years old and, and, and started to, to use, you know, marijuana and what have you. But by the time I became 13, 14 years old and we were in middle school, you know, my friends and I, you know, didn't get together uh, any longer to, uh, you know, play uh, any games or, you know, uh, mm-hmm. up at the park to uh, play baseball or anything like that. We were getting together, you know, at that point on a regular basis to get high. Yeah, you know, we were drinking and, and uh, you know getting high on a regular basis. So, you know, by the time I was in middle school, like I said, thirteen, fourteen years old, uh, I was getting high on on a regular basis, almost daily basis. Right. And not only you know before school, uh, you know after school, but even during school. Oh, uh, so uh, you know we were we were all you know dealing with with that pain and, and dealing with a lot of the the dysfunction that, that we were experiencing in our lives, and uh, you know just uh, quickly learned you know life hurts and uh, you know uh, drugs um, you know marijuana alcohol you know could ease the pain. So that's what we were doing. I mean we were just uh, you know self medicating and uh, obviously under the influence of drugs and alcohol you know, uh, started to engage in a lot of other, you know, antisocial and uh, illegal acts. Mm-hmm. I mean, we started to recognize that, hey, look at, you know, we're poor. And, uh, you know, now we went from an, uh, an elementary school that was a neighborhood school that, uh, you know, really uh, took in all of the kids from that community, the housing project oh in that community. Yeah. We're all poor. We were going to, to an elementary school where everyone was, you know, wearing hand-me-downs and, you know, holes in your sneakers, holes in your socks. And, you know, we were all, you know, coming from that same background. Yeah. Uh, but now we're, we're now moving into a middle school where it was taking in, you know, people from that poor neighborhood, but also people from uh, the more affluent middle class okay. uh, neighborhood. And now we recognize the differences between, you know, the poor and, you know, those that, uh, you know, are coming from a middle class environment. So uh, when we started to recognize those things uh-huh. uh, and, and realize our, our parents, you know, couldn't provide for us, uh, didn't have the means or what have you, uh, you know, we said, hey, look, we're going to get ours by whatever means necessary. So that's when a lot of my friends and I you know, started to engage in a lot of, like I said, antisocial 
yeah. uh, you know, illegal act and, uh, you know, doing those types of things, uh, you know, shoplifting at an early age, hmm. uh, you know, breaking into homes, breaking into cars, hmm. uh, a lot of those things, got, you know, through my early teen years, you know, 13, 14, 15 years old. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, a lot of my friends, uh, you know, as they saw, you know, this drug trade uh, just continuing to grow, like I said, uh, you know, uh, in the early 70s, uh, after the Vietnam War, I think that's when we really saw uh, a big shift. Uh, you know, we went from, uh, you know, the winos sucking uh, on, their, on, their, uh, on their bottles of wine yeah. and, and, and the hippies and, you know, all other folks, you know, smoking marijuana kind of did ease the pain. Right. Uh, we went from that to uh, 72, 73, 74 after the Vietnam War. And uh, as these soldiers were returning uh, from Vietnam, and we had quite a few. I remember, uh, you know, a, a cousin of mine and several uh, neighbors, older older neighbors of mine, uh, you know, they were, you know, guys in their you know, late teens, early 20s, these guys were coming back, you know, addicted to heroin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, the housing projects that I grew up in went from, you know, uh, you know having, uh, you know, people smoke marijuana and, and, and drinking wine to now shooting dope. And that happened almost overnight. Yeah. So 73, 74. I mean, Remember, you know, walking out of my house, running to the store, and tripping over addicts left and right. I mean, I've been seeing people stick needles in their arms since I'm, you know, eight, nine, ten years old. Uh, and and a lot of my friends and I, you know, at that point, uh, you know, that time period, yeah, we were smoking marijuana, we were drinking the wine, we were drinking and getting high, but we knew that hey, look, at sticking a needle in your arm that that's just a, that's a totally different thing. That, <laughs> We ain't going there. We're definitely not going there. Mm-hmm. And that's what Thank we goodness. tell ourselves. And these addicts that we would see, they tell us, yo, you know, young boy, young brother, you know, don't do this. This is, you know, this. stick with the weed, stick with the wine. Yeah. You, know, you don't want to do this. So, you know, they would, they would tell us these things. Uh, and so we knew it. We were seeing it, you know, and, and heroin was just taking over the neighborhood. Mm. The crime just, you know, overnight just uh, just exploded. Mm-hmm. You know, these addicts, I mean, they, they were stealing anything and everything that wasn't nailed down. Uh, it became very bad. The, the crime, the violence just, uh, you know, started to just uh, really uh, take over the community. So we went, uh, you know, from a community in the late 60s, early 70s, to now the mid to late 70s, that went from a, a poor but decent neighborhood to a ghetto. I mean, it just became yeah. an absolute ghetto. And, you know, now as a teenager, that's, you know, that's where I found myself. I found myself in the midst of, of a ghetto. Mm-hmm. The crime, the violence, the addiction, the family dysfunction, everything. And, uh, you know, basically just took all that on. I mean, started to identify with it, and, and this is who I am, and this is where I'm from, and, you know, just basically, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, just uh, almost embraced it and identified with it and became, you know, my environment became my subculture. So basically, and, uh, you know, so basically you became, point, uh, you know. <laughs> I was just going to say, so basically you became good at being bad, which is fast forward your life a little bit and, uh, well, yeah, exactly. you know, <laughs> And and you and you sort of write it, write a book about you know, you know the, that's the point I was just going to make. So yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you know 
it was went from we went from that middle school. Now we were then moved into a high school, and uh, I guess at that point the Bethlehem School District wanted to you know uh, uh, follow along with uh, uh, desegregation, and uh, now we were being bused you know uh, low income you know. Uh, minority kids from the housing projects in South Bethlehem were now being bused across town mm. into Bethlehem Township in the Freedom High School so that, uh, you know, we could desegregate that school. And that was an absolute mess because now you're taking, you know, these poor kids from the projects to an upper middle class, you know, much more affluent high school. And you talk about a culture clash. I mean, it, it was bad. I bet. Uh, you know, we didn't want to be there. They didn't want us to be there. And uh, it was constant fights. And, uh, you know, because of that, uh, you know, a lot of my friends didn't feel comfortable there. We weren't welcome there. The teachers didn't make us welcome there. The students didn't feel us, uh, make us welcome there. So at that point, you know, 16, 17, a lot of my friends started dropping out of school yeah. and started moving toward the drug trade because they saw the, the drug trade, especially selling heroin, as being lucrative and a way for them to earn a living. Yeah. And that's what a lot of them did. And, uh, you know, they started off by saying, hey, look, it, I'm just selling this stuff. I'm not going to use it. But eventually, you know, they themselves started using it. And, uh, you know, albeit started snorting the heroin. Mm -hmm. Then they went from snorting it to just popping it, you know, needle into the arm. And right. then from there, eventually just, you know, graduated into shooting up uh, into the arms. And, uh, you know, a lot of my childhood friends uh, eventually became addicts. Mm. Uh, in and out of jail, and here today continue to struggle with addiction and dysfunction. That's a shame. So that to, uh, I was just going to say, isn't that amazing how that all just starts with just one little snowflake? And for your instance, it was just, you know, visiting your cousin, going up to his room, and trying it that one time. And then every <laughs> little snowflake gets added to that snowball, and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and eventually it gets to the point where yeah. it's out of control. It's just that's just amazing yeah. to think that just each little thing contributes like that. Well, yeah, in, in my case, you know, uh, the drug use uh, started as a way, as I said before, you know, to self-medicate, to, to right. ease the pain. <clears throat> uh, that was, uh, you know, uh, my introduction or, 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 you know, that that. Uh, that experience that that pulled me into the drug use, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, you know there were other other drugs you know that, that I used uh, you know throughout uh, my uh, early years where uh, you know I might have been at a party you know cocaine uh, crack cocaine uh, and 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 uh, you know you would go to some of these parties and people would be partying and uh, the dealers uh, would uh, you know walk around the party talking to folks and they turn as we used to say turn people onto it hey you know have a taste of this or try this or what have you. Yep. And, uh, you know, uh, you, you, you try that, the, the, the cocaine, uh, you try, you know, uh, the, the, co uh, the crack, uh, you try, you know, uh, the opioids, uh, the pills and eventually, you know, yeah, you, you like that, that, that sense, that euphoria, that, that sense of high, that euphoric sense of high. And, uh, you know, uh, you meet up with those individuals again and boom, again, you know, they're, they're uh, you know, turning you on to it, giving it to you. And uh, that's one of the things that I I've talked about constantly about the failed war on drugs. And, uh, you know, there were many, many drugs that I used uh, throughout my lifetime uh, that uh, were given to me 
uh, I didn't purchase them. They were given to me mm-hmm. the first time, the second time, the third time I used them. And, uh, you know, these these uh, people that are dealing drugs, they know what they're doing. They're, they're developing their clientele. Yep. Mm-hmm. Basically, they're getting you hooked on whatever it is that uh, they're selling. So they're going to give you that taste, uh, you know, that first time. And they're going to give you that second taste and maybe a third. <laughs> and when you go back and say, yo, brother... You know, can I have some of that? They're going to say, yo, that stuff ain't free anymore. Nope. And now yeah. you're hooked. Yeah. yeah it's like so, when, we, uh, when we used to be allowed to walk in malls and you used to walk by the Cinnabon shop and there was always <laughs> that guy out there in front of Cinnabon that would give you a sample. Well, there's only so many samples yeah. you can take until you have to pay for it. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. So, you know, how people get introduced to drugs, uh, you know, it, it could be you know, that, that you're just growing up in, in a community that's overwhelmed by drugs and, and you know, you're, you're, you're seeing people that are using drugs and, and you seek it out because you think that, you know, it's something that can help you ease the pain, as I said, self-medicate, and, and, and you just want to disconnect and you don't want to feel, you just want to be able to just disconnect and, and, and just get high. Uh, you know, so there are people that are coming from that perspective in certain communities, and then you've got other people in your more affluent communities, and they might be dealing with their own, you know, life sure. issues. And who to say that? Who say that just because you come from an affluent area that that life doesn't suck sometimes, <laughs> or that life doesn't hurt? Uh, you know, of course, I know that now. So uh, you know, those people also seek to self-medicate, and they might find themselves in a situation where people are turning them on to these uh, to these drugs. And basically, you know, developing that clientele. Now, uh, you know, I, I don't think that uh, those things happen in those more fluid communities at such an early age. Right. You know, I don't think you got kids in middle neighborhoods getting high at eight, nine, ten, eleven years old. Uh, but you know, eventually, you know, uh, you know, people do turn to drugs for whatever reason, and. Uh, you know, uh, that those drugs are being, uh, you know, provided to them by people that maybe have uh, a motive for, uh, you know, getting you to use that drug because financially they're going to benefit from it. Right. So, like I said, a lot of my friends, you know, they, they got into selling it and then eventually became, uh, you know, users and addicts themselves. And, uh, you know, when I think about some of those friends, I think about, you know, at an early age, like I said, playing games with them, you know, hide and seek and, you know, maybe uh, Little League Baseball or what have you, engaging with them and knowing that they were good kids, you know, really good kids. And, uh, you know, I went from, uh, you know, doing those fun things with them at such an early age to now, you know, uh, thinking about them as as teenagers and young adults, watching Mm -hmm. them shoot up and in, in many cases, you know, holding their arm or, or, you know, holding that belt as a tourniquet and mm. helping them get high. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that, uh, you know, just to think about some of those things, uh, you know, it, it's difficult. Mm-hmm. But, you know, how, how you alluded to my book, Being Good at Being Bad. Yeah. And, you and, know, when uh, I, I mentioned that because, uh, you know, uh, I know how big education plays a role in, in – uh, how people are going to survive the projects. I mean, I feel like that's probably a part of what helped you survive if I'm, if I, you know, stand corrected, but, uh, you know, I believe that, you know, education is important to you. Well, I know it's important to you. And I also know that you feel like there's a lot of people that were, you know, 
probably didn't make it out the way they should have because of a lack of education or a lack of upbringing. And uh, yeah, talk about your book, Being Good at Being Bad, the first book, I should say. Yeah, my first book. Well, you know, uh, in that book, I, I, I do share uh, quite a bit of uh, my life experiences, but I also talk a lot about, uh, you know, systemic uh, issues that really contribute to uh, young people taking on that particular lifestyle, being good at being bad. Right. And uh, what I what I try to uh, impress upon people throughout the book is that, you know, uh, life experiences go a long way toward determining, you know, uh, uh, a certain level of, of success and, uh, you know, in, in many ways, you know, who you are and who you become. And, uh, you know, in the book, I talk about three primary areas. I talk about the home, the community, and the school. And what I say there is that, uh, you know, trying to use a, a baseball metaphor, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you're growing up in a household where you're experiencing domestic violence, physical, verbal, psychological abuse, you're dealing with poverty, you know, low income, housing projects, uh, public assistance, all of that emphasizes failure, especially to a, to a young person. It emphasizes failure, especially today. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, people, people, I think, become uh, aware at a much earlier age that, hey, life isn't fair. You know, like I said, when I was in elementary school, I didn't know any better. I mean, I thought everyone lived this way because I didn't know any better. Right. Today, that's not the case. But if you're, if you're growing up in a household where you're dealing with that dysfunction, you're dealing with that type of abuse, that emphasizes failure. Now, you know, if you're dealing with that within your own home, and now you step out the front door of your house, and you're stepping out into a community, into a neighborhood, where you have drugs and violence, uh, you know, gang activity, uh, dysfunction, poverty, uh, you know, that now also emphasizes failure. Mm -hmm. So, you know, here you are, you know, you walk out of your house after dealing with the things that you're dealing with inside your household. You're walking out, you're interacting with your peers from your neighbor, and they're all dealing with similar situations, you know, whether it's domestic abuse or what have you. And now in, in your own community, you know, you're dealing with uh, the gangs and the violence and the dysfunction. Now you start to take that on as well. Right. And, uh, you know, you start to identify with that. And now, you know, uh, maybe, you know, one of the arguments I make or one of the things I, I try to impress upon people when I talk about this is if you walk into a, a, a neighborhood like this, a, a disadvantaged neighborhood, housing projects or what have you, and uh, you walk over to the playground where you have a group of young kids playing. Those young kids might be six, seven, eight years old, and you see those kids playing, and they might be shooting hoops or, you know, doing what, uh, what uh, you know, kids do in a playground nowadays, just having some fun. And if you stop those kids, you know, six, seven, eight years old, and you ask those kids, hey, kid, you know, what do you want to do? What do you want to be when yes. you grow up? You know, some of those kids might tell you, hey, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a fireman. I want to be a policeman. Those kids, you know, at that young age still have hopes, dreams, goals, and aspirations. Even though they're living with, you know, the dysfunction in their home, uh, there's still, you would hope, uh, some sense of innocence in those kids mm-hmm. at that early age. Mm-hmm. But now, you, you, you know, you walk away from that group of kids, six, seven, eight years old, 
and now you walk you know to the other end of the playground or you walk down the block or you walk to the end of the alley and you see kids there that are 14 15 16 17 years old and you ask those students or you ask those kids Hey, you know, where do you see yourself five years from now? Where do you want to be five years from now? You're going to get a totally different response. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to say, hey, look, you know, uh, uh, I don't know where I'm going to be five years from now. Uh, you know, I don't know that I, that I, you know, I'm going to be alive five years from now. I don't know that I want to be alive five years from now because life hurts so much. They might tell you, you know, hey, I might be in jail. Or, you know, some of them might say, hey, I'm, I'm going to be, you know, the next rap superstar or what have you. But, uh the expectations are very different, and most of those uh, older teens, their expectations are probably not going to be uh, as as uh, as uh, positive as those younger kids that were at the playground. So my question is, what happens, you know, between you know six, seven, and eight years old, and fourteen, fifteen, sixteen years old, you know, and and you're talking about kids that are growing up in the same community, and some of them might be related. And what happens between, you know, your, your younger years and your, and your teen years is life. Life happens. You start to realize that, right. hey, life hurts. You know, and you're dealing with a lot of those things, whether it's the loss of a family member. You know, a, a close friend is shot and killed. How many, I mean, how many, you know, teenagers, you know, could you ask today have lost a, a, a family member, a close friend uh, to violence? And, and they'll tell you that. So true. So, uh, you know, by the time you're 14, 15, 16 years old, you know, life isn't pleasant. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, getting back to the book, Being Good at Being Bad, you know, if your household emphasizes failure, your community emphasizes failure, now you're walking into school and now you've got this attitude. You know, you're, you're, you're starting to uh, present yourself, you know, uh, based on your life experiences. And, you know, a lot of these young people that are walking into, you know, seventh, eighth grade and and, and probably more so in your high school grades, you know, as students, again, they aspire to, you know, do really good things. But now they're walking into their high schools and they no longer aspire to be that doctor, that lawyer or what have you, because they don't believe it's realistic that they can do that. Right. It's not realistic that I can do that. There's nothing in my life, in my experiences, that would suggest to me that, yes, I can be a doctor, I can mm-hmm. be a lawyer, because the people that are in my life, the people that I've seen and interacted with throughout my life, don't reflect or represent that. So do you, now... Do you think it would be fair to even lump um, media, even media or TV entertainment into that some as well? Of course. Of course, yeah. When I talk about when I talk about the community, and that's a good point, Troy. And, and I do uh, uh, discuss this in the book. When I talk about the community, I do include the media, and I, I, I talk about the music industry, and I talk about the entertainment industry, and I talk about uh, the, uh, the the negative influence uh, that I believe uh, that the hip hop uh, genre and the hip hop movement. Uh, really uh, uh, contributed. You know, when you talk about, uh, you know, who were some of the influential people, you know, in the 90s, and you talk about Snoop Dogg and Ice mm-hmm. Cube and Ice-T, uh, you know, I really had a difficult time, you know, and, and I talk about this in my book, because a lot of young people were looking at them as their heroes. 
and you know when you look at the the music and you listen to the lyrics in the music and uh, you know the chronic uh, gin and juice you know and, and talking about you know the blunt and getting high uh, obviously you know a lot of young people were, were looking at those individuals as role models and that obviously no doubt contributed to kids taking on this being good at being bad lifestyle mm-hmm. women, women as objects now they were excuse me women as objects was often used to like oh absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. you know the degradation of women no doubt about it you know so now again they're not looking at you know people in, in professional careers uh, you know, people that, that have gone on to become educated and now are serving in, 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 as professionals, uh, you know, uh, within the within uh, these different fields. They're not looking at those individuals as their role models because they're identified with, uh, you know, the gangsters. Because the gangsters are the people that are running mm-hmm. their community. The drug dealers, the pimps, uh, you know, those are the people that are running their community. Those are people that have status. Right, and we are back, and uh, so as we said, that is the uh, first half of the interview, and uh, and uh, Jose Rosado, uh, you know, he has a lot to talk about, you know, there's there's a lot that went on in his life, he, he grew up from some humble beginnings, and as you just heard, you know, being the first Latino mayor in um, Pennsylvania history, and this was mm-hmm. in the mid-2000s, folks, yeah. I mean, think about that, uh, that feat should have been accomplished a long time ago but here we are absolutely you know in the in the 21st century just talking about it now yeah and did he did he say there was only like been two others since then like it's still not very many correct i believe the current mayor of Reading, pennsylvania is is latino i don't know about the other one so yeah that's that's crazy i think he said it was somewhere out west i think i believe you're right yeah somewhere out near pittsburgh yeah. So, um, but yeah, that's that's crazy. That's yeah. that's really crazy. It is. And you know, it was something I brought up. Like, is it you know? What do you think? It's just a lack of interest, or do you think there's a little bit of race involved? And I think it's probably a combination of both of them. Uh huh. I think a little bit of it is is the race maybe actually um, feeling they're not going to have a fair chance. So why should I try? Right. You know what I mean? Yep. So the the, the race factor probably plays into the interest a little bit. You know. Definitely. Definitely. And and. And we talk about, too, growing up, um, you know, in poverty-stricken towns, you know, where we are kind of set up to say, you know what, you can never accomplish this or that. And I think that has a lot to do with it, too, where, you know, even the the culture that they grew up in, you know, they're they're always being told that, you know, don't shoot your goals too high uh, because you're never going to succeed in Mm -hmm. a different level, like being in politics and such. you know, so yeah, so really, really interesting uh, conversation, and uh, like we said, next week it continues as we kind of dive into you know a little bit more of you know the uh, inner city childhood, and and we also dive into you know what he means by being good at being bad, and uh, and then deliberate injustice when he starts talking about the uh, Allentown School District uh, mm-hmm. in, in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and how they probably did not follow the guidelines according to Jose. So, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, stay tuned for part two next week. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I said, he'll dig into that a little bit more, get a little bit more controversial than what this episode was, but also have some very, uh, strong heartfelt moments in there as well. Yes. Um, you know, you can tell by talking to him that he, he really 
it was really tugging at his heartstrings there, um, you know, to try to do the right thing for these kids, but also knowing that he's probably going to be the target of something and, and might end up even losing his job if he stands up for what he believes in. So stay tuned to hear that story as well. Most definitely. So with that being said, uh, we'll close out this week's, um, stay tuned episode and, uh, we'll, we'll end it with, uh, with your normal outro and, uh, we'll see you next week. Stay tuned. Thank you for listening to another episode. Please like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at StayTunedTNH. Email us, StayTunedTNH at gmail.com. And uh, whichever podcast avenue you're listening to us on, Google, Apple, Spotify, uh, please subscribe, share, rate, and review. And until next week, stay tuned.